welcome to this episode of One Book at a Time, the Manchester University Press podcast. Time to slow down, consider the issues, learn the histories and exercise your brain in the open air of considered judgment and frontline thinking. And help us change the world one book at a time. Historian Asa Briggs coined the phrase shock city about Manchester's Victorian splendour. In the 1980s, the shock for visitors was just how far the city had declined. But then something happened. So here we are outside what used to be the, uh, the front entrance of the, uh, the Hacienda Club, which opened in 1982 as a lab experiment in popular culture, according to its founder, Tony Wilson. Author Andy Spinoza has a theory about the revival of the city. Did it really start with just one building? And today, uh, it's actually the front door of an apartment scheme called the Hacienda Apartments. Andy came to Manchester in the late 70s. He set up City Life Listings magazine after graduating university before becoming a freelance journalist and then editor of the diary page of the Manchester Evening News. Leaving there in the late 90s, he became a PR supremo, a position which saw him become involved in the city's booming property sector. And in the ground floor, embedded into the building, is an estate agent who have used the classic Ben Kelly hazard warning stripe design for a huge poster that reads, Hacienda, your local property experts. Sell, buy, let, rent, mortgage services and more. One of the questions Andy asks is, did this seemingly improbable boom just start with a nightclub? Opened in a city centre, then on its knees. And, you know, what clearer sign really that, you know, what started as this... uh, artistic bohemian gift to Manchester's interesting community is now the the epicentre of of a property boom. My name is Matthew Frost and in this episode of One Book at a Time we take the author to four emblematic buildings, each with its part to play in Manchester Unspun, pop, property and power in the original modern city. We start in a pub, one of the city's oldest. We're in, the, we're in the, um, the, the rear of the Britain's Protection, the 200-year-old pub with uh, associations with Peterloo, you know, Manchester before it was, or in the early stages of it becoming the Victorian shock city. This sort of venerable old pub was much beloved of Hacienda clubbers before they went into the Hacienda around the corner on Whitworth Street West. Looking out the back window of the Britain's Protection, that's a wonderful building opposite, isn't it? That was cheerleaders... Right. This building here, there's a door on the side that leads down, and that's where, as diary editor, I went to see uh, Muhammad Ali being chaperoned by Max Clifford. There was this huge uh, crowd of people gagging for a drink who were told they couldn't have a drink until Ali, as a strict Muslim, had left the building. 
and after about an hour and a half of him signing, all's gone doing photographs, he left, and they were like, hey, cheer. And then he came back down the stairs, <laughs> doing that sort of James Brown, <laughs> I ain't done yet routine. But, and he did this three more times, and then he, when he finally left in a taxi, someone said, he's, he's definitely left, and the whole place erupted in a, in a huge cheer. <laughs> which they could probably hear around the corner at the Hacienda, because <laughs> they could finally have a drink for Saturday night, after all. So the, uh, the landscape around the Britain's protection has changed quite a bit in the 40 years of your book, hasn't it? Looking over the tops of the four-storey Victorian building in front of us, we can just see the emerging the 58-storey tower at De- Deansgate Square, which is a, a four-strong complex of, of skyscrapers, which will be joined not far away by a further six that have already uh, gone through planning and in construction. And uh, the development just doesn't seem to stop around here, does it? Well, in between the building where Cheerleaders was, a tacky sports bar, and where we're standing now is the Bridge Protection pub garden. And on that space, and um, between the back door of the British Protection and the building over the road, we are faced with the prospect of a 28-storey tower on this really postage stamp-sized footprint. The space we're talking about really has got, what, maybe space of five or six cars and a bit of a beer garden behind the pub. And that's it, you know. I think it's just it's just symptomatic of the free-for-all that some see Manchester's uh, residential property scene has become. Manchester unspun. You describe it, Andy, very accurately, I think, as examining the strange chemical reaction of pop culture, property and politics. Those are the areas that I've been involved with for 40 years, since I arrived in Manchester in 79. The property for which rebuildings, architecture, entranced me because there was a sense of a fall and civilization. There was a charisma to the place that was like a high gothic drama, really, especially on a Sunday when the city was pretty empty of, of people, apart from a few students, like me and my friends, and we would we would come to the British Protection, but not before we had wandered through the ruins of the smashed-up former Manchester Central train station. We'd walk all the way down to um, Pomona Docks and, you know, there was a sense of a grandiose civilization whose time had, had passed. Manchester Unspun is, is an autobiography, a musical and sociological history, an investigation of the, the huge transformation of the city. But how much would you say that the city has grown, how, you know, how its development has grown? Is, is it exceptional? City centre population, when I moved, when I came to Manchester in 79, was a was probably about 500 people and now the nearest snapshot we can get to that is probably 60,000 people in that area and probably a quarter of a million people if you take in the what might be called the outer city centre so those areas have a city centre character as well so it really is quite a transformation and one I don't think that, that London and nationally has, has, has quite been uh, recognised yet. We are just getting into the lift of the uh, Hilton Hotel to go to the 23rd floor 
of this tower that was completed in 2007. It's a, it's a crisp, clear, cold day, and we're looking to see some, some fabulous views. So here we are in cloud 23, 23rd floor of the Hilton Hotel, and it's you know one of the buildings that stands out. Yeah, it's distinctive st shape, which uh, some people have compared to a, a mobile phone shape. It's become almost emblematic, really, of the new Manchester. Manchester's never really had that kind of one single structure that uh, stood in for the city. We're looking out, in fact, at the four huge towers of Deansgate Square. So it's almost as though Beetham Tower has been usurped by these new upstarts that are taller and shinier and make even more impact on the eyesight and the landscape. Next to Deansgate Square, you, you've now got three or four more buildings going up which are look, looking like they're over 50 stories. I believe there are another six of, of that kind of height, over, over 50 certainly. You know, they overlook the nearby Hume neighbourhood, which um, 40 years ago would have seen six sort of ball rings in a style that was supposedly modelled on the Georgian crescents in Bath. So those crescents and 12 other towers made up Hume. Just next to uh, the Liverpool Road train station, you have the, f the factory, that, that new building there. So what is the significance of that, Andy? The significance of the Factory International, as it's now been named, is the almost ultimate expression of where Manchester's leaders see the city going. They see the need for Manchester to have something different that attracts uh, leaders, thinkers, influencers from around the world and they want to be saying there's something interesting going on in Manchester. The building itself could be said to lack some visual appeal. It's been described to be variously as the head of a giant robot or less flattery perhaps a giant beetle or cockroach so we've just been talking about hume looking at hume over on, on that side and then you look out of the the side window and you've got factory international it's full circle isn't it yeah how did we go from you know busman's um social club in hume putting on punk nights called the factory nights to uh, the 211 million pound factory international art space opening in 2023 with probably 100 million pounds from a conservative government everything in between those two bookends is uh, it's a subject of, of, of my book For those who don't know it, Andy, could you explain uh, just sort of what the uh, the Hume estate was, that, that brutalist, concrete, uh, so-called, you know, award-winning masterpiece of the 60s and 70s, and what it became in Manchester? It was um, a failed housing experiment, modernist, in uh, extremist. By the time I lived in Hume in 1980, for two years, um, all the so-called normal people had been moved out. It was an unpleasant place to live. There was lots of, of crime and um, deprivation. It became totally a bohemian quarter of, uh, of squatters, students, musicians, artists. And it was a pretty mind-mashing place to live. We used to call it Planet Hume because it, it just did, it did seem to be in another world entirely.
So, do you do you see the redevelopment of Hume as, as one of the beginnings of the redevelopment of Manchester? Hume's important in two ways. One, it was the uh, location for factory records, punk gigs in the uh, the Russell Club. More importantly, from a sort of urban planning point of view, in 1992, the Conservative government and the Labour Council collaborated uh, in depth on a complete redevelopment of the old Vale estate and using what's called the Hume Design Code built a new neighbourhood that is probably uh, the template for the design of all, the redesign of all failed council estates across the country. Is it is it fair to link the redevelopment of Hume to the redevelopment of the city centre? It is fair to link the two because not only was it so close to the city centre and the university that its influence, if you like, spilled over into those nearby sites, but it was a successful cooperation between uh, Labour Council and Conservative government that set this kind of partnership working model in place that then came into play with the Manchester bomb in 1996 in many other projects since since that date you can you know you can date it from the Hume partnership so uh, Andy we've left uh, left the Britain's protection and uh, we've just been listening to the bells of the hidden gem which is no longer quite so hidden and we're standing in front of the uh, marvellous Christo-like clad um, town hall so what can you say about this? Well it's clad in an in a installation art <laughs> style covering uh, because it's undergoing a, a third of a billion pound restoration a sort of a future proofing from top to bottom you can't really see the, the grandiose building by Alfred Waterhouse. That was a testament to Manchester's commercial power and status in the late Victorian age. For most people, they would see this building as the kind of centre of power in Manchester, and so it is in the city of Manchester. But in 2017, we enjoyed devolution, Greater Manchester, combined authority led by Mayor Andy Burnham. That whole operation is based up the road on Oxford Street, and my book does look at one or two episodes of some friction between uh, the age-old city council and the new sheriff in town, if you like, with, with Andy Burnham. So what happened in the 1980s where you had a Labour-led council but it attracted such investment uh, from... A Tory, uh, a Tory government. So in the 1980s, Manchester was bracketed along with London, Liverpool and Sheffield as, as, as rebel authorities taking on the Conservative government. But in 1987, when the Conservatives won uh, another election, they basically did a U-turn, you know, and Graham Stringer's on record as saying, you know, he wrote to the government and in his words saying... We lost you one, now we want to work with you. And ever since, Manchester has been firmly welcoming of, of investment. So it starts with the Hume City Challenge of the mid-80s. Then you had the IRA bomb. You then had Urbis and the Millennium Quarter, which came out of the 
bomb damaged area and all these strengthened relationships between Manchester and not only the politicians who of course who come and go but the civil servants who tend to stick around and be very very influential talking to government and this process you know eventually was to lead to the devolution deal delivered almost outside of conservative government to give Manchester quite you know jaw-dropping set of devolved powers um, which now is setting the template for both main political parties saying this is how we're going to give legitimacy back to areas that have been failed by central government policy over the last hundred years. George Osborne had a great effect on, on Manchester if only because of the Northern Powerhouse. Yep. Northern Powerhouse <laughs> I think became a joke very very quickly but it's still there and it still has, has had an effect. Northern Powerhouse was you know was the phrase on lips of many a politician from 2016 when George Osborne and his people conjured it up. He announced that Manchester was the capital of the Northern Powerhouse and he had very close relations with the powers that be in Manchester. He could see the business-friendly approach of the city centre and his civil servants would have given him great confidence that here was you know, the council that was deserving of devolved governance and, and devolution followed. I mean, Northern Powerhouse now is basically a historical curio that um, no one takes seriously because funding wasn't uh, mainly for transport improvements wasn't really followed through it was since kind of overridden by you know an even vaguer mantra of leveling up which is also now is treated with great derision by you know the political landscape so it was interesting for its time and I would argue that Manchester exploited the Northern Powerhouse for all it was worth but it wasn't worth much more than what we got out of it. Uh, so Graham Stringer, who was the leader of the council and is, is now a, a Manchester MP, but more famously uh, Richard Lees and Howard Bernstein, the, the leader of the council and the city's chief executive, they must take a huge amount of credit in the regeneration. Why was their partnership so influential? I think you have a coming together of two incredibly smart, tenacious and motivated individuals, I'm talking uh, Lease and Bernstein. Yeah. Lease, technically the uh, boss of Bernstein, leader in charge of the civil servant. Bernstein, the master property brain, uh, who was able to put deals together, uh, bring together uh, financiers, developers, always with the, the determination to create leisure, commercial, residential, activity in Manchester. It's a very common phrase in Manchester's politics and property that Sir Howard Bernstein was um, a property developer disguised as a town clerk, which was another one of his roles. And together they were a formidable partnership because in my experience they never contradicted each other and they were rarely photographed together. Uh, Richard handled the politics and that showed us to the commercial powers that here was a council that was united the politics was not going to undermine the, um, the development the new leader of the new chief executive uh, of Manchester uh, are very much committed to continuing the same 
policies that Lee and Bernstein laid down, which is a lot of development, a lot of tall towers and the increasing expansion of the city centre. So, and it's inevitable we'd end up here, isn't it, outside outside this door? Yeah, so this is the uh, where the uh, double doors used to be with FAC 51 uh, template uh, inside the uh, the doors. You've got now what is Hacienda Apartments uh, front entrance. The queue would go round the side here where we see now an estate agents. And that queue was almost like a community in itself waiting for the um, club to open people would sell fanzines and probably less legal wares <clears throat> to the people in the queue. Park cars would park right along this corner. Memorable to me because one night I saw a, uh, a police undercover sting of a, of, a, of a drug deal going down with um, vans and, and, and coppers and mayhem. And um, it's memorable uh, for the outside of Hacienda just as much as the inside. Tony Wilson uh, went on record about the, the Hacienda, of course, just saying, yes, let it go. Yeah, he said, um, he was quizzed about it on TV, why didn't he want to save the building? Um, his quote was, nostalgia is a disease, cities change, things change, let's not get sentimental about a, a pile of bricks. Um, I do wonder whether beneath that there was a sadness, that because he couldn't change the fact the building uh, had been sold and was due to be demolished uh, for a charity auction property market had taken over you know what was a failed enterprise uh, council was encouraging redevelopment so there was only going to be one outcome We're going to talk about the Hacienda. I mean, there is a sense of Hacienda fatigue with the 40th anniversary, etc. But you say in the book, it could never, of course, begin with just one eccentric and experimental building. And yet it did. Um, I think this is a very telling line. Can you sort of expatiate on that a little? Yeah, but let's deal with the fatigue first, because... <laughs> no, because, um, quite rightly, you know, people have got bored with the superficial, one-dimensional picture of the Hacienda that has emerged mainly as a result of the Manchester explosion. You know, the likes of Sean Ryder being seen as, the, you know, the, the archetypal Hacienda customer, you know, at the club's height. And he had a part to play, of course, as did Happy Mondays. But, you know, Hacienda's origins were from Factory Records and those people behind Factory Records could have taken their money and gone and lived in Cheshire or even the Isle of Man and become tax exiles. They didn't, you know, they put the money made from Joy Division's records into a huge nightclub that was poorly designed for the audience at the time. You know, they announced on the original membership forms for the, uh, the new uh, clientele in 1982, you know, intention to, to create a sense of place. So it's right up there in the stated aims of the Hacienda that you know, this was for Manchester it was their contribution to making the city great again, however absurd and, uh, oh, and, and that, that sounds. Um, 
And of course, Tony Wilson, one of the founders, did sound, often sound absurd when saying every city needs its cathedrals and, and this is ours. New York and Paris have got theirs and it's a cathedral to pop culture. You know, all that was some seven or eight years before it did take on cathedral-like characteristics with the rave scene. But I think reimagining what Manchester could be as a city, we have a paper trail. It's in the very DNA of, uh, of the club's origins. The Situationist essay that Hacienda name was taken from yeah. is all about the imaginative power of cities rather than efficient city planning and property values. Yeah. It's about sparking the imagination. And Wilson and, and Gretton and Savile and Hannett and Erasmus knew that essay inside out and very overtly referred to it with the name. So you've got all this going on. The future had arrived in Manchester, uh, but not very many people seemed to want to be a part of it. Uh, the numbers were very low. Had some, some, some big gigs there, but generally it lost you know, a fortune. It's an open matter that you know, it probably lost £2 million in the first three or four years. And they still ploughed their money into it. And of course they did Shanghai New Order into uh, continuing to invest in it. And all that happened before this kind of revolution in popular culture happened, which then bizarrely seemed to make sense of the space. And all of a sudden they had the perfect nightclub for, for dance music, all people of different levels, it was a visual experience. And the punters became part of the show. Uh, Tony Wilson, uh, of course, is, you know, I, I loved your description, that compelling ball of confusion. He is a central figure in the myth of Manchester of the last 40 years, isn't he? Where do we start with Wilson? You know, he always said, you know, we're forced to choose between fact and the legend, you know, print the legend. And I've got a little nod to that in my preface with a quote from Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. I love the quote because it basically says, we don't actually know our recent past as well as we think we do. If we think of the last 20 years of the 20th century, which is the first half of this book, what a completely different society we had. I mean, look at the city, what a completely different city we experienced. And I think if I've done anything, it's to remind the reader of some very recent chapters in our history that are almost in danger of being forgotten. It's that civic history that needs to be communicated to people who may be arriving in Manchester today thinking maybe <laughs> this is how it's always been. No, the changes have been momentous and I don't think they would have happened without those popular culture uh, movers and shakers make, making them happen. Would you say that it is more attractive today? And certainly when I came up here, which was shortly after you, there's something about you know, the excitement of it being rebuilt. But, but do you have any nostalgia for that time? Well, people coming here now for different things, they're coming yeah. for work, but they're coming because they're attracted by a different Manchester. You know, I was reading about Manchester and seeing photographs in the New Musical Express and the other music papers, which acted as a kind of alternative tourist board for alienated youth like me, who wanted somewhere kind of unusual and a place to hang out and a place to be where I think it you know expressed their own angst and psychology at the time I think people coming to Manchester today 
to make their fortune, you know, to be entrepreneurs. Digital economy is, is really booming. There's a sort of a, a critical mass of business activity here that kind of puts London to shame in that London's digital economy is pretty much of a hyped thing. There's a lot of money there, but people are coming to Manchester for a community. It's a sense of, of community, I think, that you don't see in the capital city. Can we overstate the importance of the Hacienda? Well, Manchester Unspun takes the premise that, you know, would Manchester be as booming a city with the devolved political powers it has and with the global investment appeal it has today if factory records and the Hacienda had not existed? We, we can't say whether without the Hacienda, Manchester would be the worst city or a or a better city, we can say that it would have been a very different city. And not only in the place itself, which brought you know, the interesting community out to play and to meet in ways perhaps that we don't quite see today when we're, a lot of us are sitting uh, at our screens uh, communing virtually, but also in, in those people, what they went on to do and those people's roles in various aspects of what has made modern Manchester. So, short list, Peter Saville, factory director, was hired to revive the city's brand with the original modern brand proposition. Hacienda manager John Drape was hired to launch Spinning Fields corporate office district. Sasha Lord, who promoted his first nights as a young entrepreneur is now Andy Burnham the Greater Manchester Mayor's right hand man on all things leisure and leisure and hospitality and there are other examples so without the Hacienda would we have the city uh, that we have today I don't believe that we would and all those examples are detailed and, and more besides in, uh, in the book Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester University Press podcast, One Book at a Time. The song, Watching the Hydroplanes, was courtesy of Tunnel Vision. If you like what you've heard, please check out the MUP website, www.manchesteruniversitypress.uk, where you can find and order a copy of this book and many others like it. Don't forget to follow us on all the major social media platforms and subscribe to our newsletter for 30% off all of our books.